Over the years, said Nathan Sharansky, I've come to understand a critical difference between the world of fear and the world of freedom. In the world of fear, the primary challenge is finding the strength to confront evil. In the world of freedom, the primary challenge is finding the moral clarity to see evil. Oh Lord, thank you for blessing me to live in a world of freedom. Give me now the strength to see evil and to confront it. I'm Rav Mike Foyer. This is the Jewish Heroism Project. A special live class launching the project for Hanukkah in honor of my father's yard site, the Tal Ben Avraham Charles M. Foyer has been 24 years, and I offer this to you. Welcome to the yard site here in honor of my father, Talbin Avram, uh, Charles M. Foyer. It's 5784, which means that we're in the 24th yard site of my father. Um, and I've been doing this class for a long time. There's some faithful faces out there, there's some new faces. There's a bunch of people here in the Zoomiverse, and I really just appreciate everybody coming together for the sake of Torah in honor of my father. Tonight actually is also a launch party. You guys may not have known that, but we're having a party here. So make some noise, people make some noise, right? It's symptomatic of our world that the launch happens in this sort of real space and in the virtual space. But the launch party is for the Jewish Heroism Project. The website is now live. If people haven't seen the website, I strongly encourage you to type jewishheroism.com into your computer browser there and you will see the very hard work of my dear friend Eitan Ben Avram and myself of coming up with something I'm going to speak about a little bit further, but I just wanted to welcome everyone. So, okay. Um, before I get started on the main body of, of the shir, of the class, I just wanted to say a quick word about heroism and my father uh, as an introduction. Um, you know, everybody believes that the parents are their heroes. I do actually have to say one more thing on that note, is that uh, for the first time, I actually have someone in the room who actually knew my father. I've been in this class, some of you guys can come in this class for what, 15 plus years, right? Um, and I more or less say every year that it's, it's hard. It's hard to live in a world where my wife never met my father, my children never, you know, all the family things, et cetera. And then when it comes to this day of the year that I go out of my way to actually talk about and think about my father, to have nobody in the room who knows who I'm talking about is a strange and, and often a difficult thing. And my mom has made it through the headwinds of war um, to be in the room with us today. So you can wave, mom. I warned you, I warned you. All right. Um, I'm not going to make you speak, but I'm tempted. Um, so, 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 first things first, this shear is called Maccabean heroism, and I want to speak about the power, or really the gvura, and we're going to define that term, um, of moral clarity, which I think is a very important quantity in the world in general, specifically in the national situation in which we find ourselves. In many ways, we might even argue, or I will try to argue, that that's what the battle is all about. And, and the expression of that happens in many fields. But before I do, if we're going to talk about Maccabean heroism, I have to offer you a definition of heroism. Right? And I want to use that just to connect a little bit to my dad. So what is heroism? Right? Uh, the Jewish Heroism Project is all about defining that. In fact, there's going to be 26 paths that trace what I like to think of as the, the, the heroic face of the Torah. If you're familiar with the idea of partsuf, 
in Tartanistar in the hidden aspects of Troy. If not, a face has many lines. You can see it from many angles. It emerges in different lights. Every face has facets. The face of heroism is the focus of the Jewish Heroism Project. And God willing, if you guys see on the uh, website what the content starts to look like, you'll get a sense of the main line. God willing, there'll be many more things. I have all kinds of crazy ideas. But first, you've got to get a definition. The working definition of heroism, in my opinion, in Torah, is misirut nefesh l'ma'antov. Misirut nefesh means sort of going beyond or growing beyond your limited self. Often it's translated as self-sacrifice, but I think that's, while accurate, it's limited. Self-sacrifice is one way in which you can express misirut nefesh, but as we say, you know a person by what they're willing to live for even more than what they're willing to die for, and that's its own misirut nefesh. Like I like to think in Jewish history, right? Um, every you know Jewish woman who I don't know broke the ice in a frozen mikvah, or uh, you know, uh, you know, or every man who got up early morning to pray slichos before there was you know gas light, much less you know in, in, indoor heating, etc. That's a mesirut nefesh. It's a choice to live in and out every day for something that you believe in. So it's a going beyond your limited self, man tov. And that's where really the definition gets sticky. I'm not going to define what tov, what good is right now, but I will offer you to this. You must see the first episode of the Heroism Project to understand it, because tov is the gate. Right? If there are 26 paths of heroism, tov is the gate through which we have to pass. And my contention is that there's an essential goodness of creation, which the Jewish people have been created to pursue, articulate, and maintain connection to our lived moral reality of good and evil, and that has a lot to do with what we're going to do. What does it have to do with my father? Well, first of all, my dad was a good guy. And, and in fact, you know, that sounds facile, but I promise you that in Mom Fair's statement that everybody knew him was like, hey, he was a good guy. He, was, he loved life. He was a good man. It was very important to me that I look to him as a father figure even after he's gone from my life, having five children and being a father myself now. Um, you know, it, but beyond that, he also was most serenefish. He was a man with hustle, who, who, who went beyond. And whether I was going beyond by being quiet and listening to me is my mouth. You can imagine what I was like as a teenager. Right? I, I found a profession that let me talk. <laughs> but you know, once upon a time, I just couldn't hold it back. And, and his capacity to listen, which is a very special expression of Mesirut Nefesh, of going beyond your limited self and opening to other. Um, his devotion to our family. Right? I, I, remember, I have a memory that I've shared many times in this context, but I'll just briefly note it that when I graduated from college, I didn't want to get a job. Right? And uh, I didn't tell my dad. I asked mom to tell dad, and you said no, if you recall. You tell yourself. But sure enough, after graduation, my dad came to me and said, your mother tells me you don't want to get a job. I'm like, yes. Right? Uh, that's how I was poorly raised. Um, anyway, I'm kidding. Um, and he said to me, why? And I told him because he never had a choice. He didn't have a chance. He had a low draft number, which meant he would have gone to Southeast Asia if he hadn't actually found a job in an essential industry, which he did in Michigan Bell, out of college, got married, went to work, stay out of the war, have kids, get a mortgage, have a job. And I don't know that he ever realized he was missing anything. But when I said to him, I had a chance to be totally free, and I was going to go to Australia and travel, and it lit him on fire. He came back to me after graduation, gave me a check for the plane ticket, and he said, the only thing I asked is that you keep a journal which I did for almost a decade afterwards.
I still have them, right? You'll never read it. <laughs> um, the, uh, not till I'm dead at least. Okay, so, so, so this is a little taste of my dad in a sense that heroism could be grand, it can be on the scale of Rabbi Akiva who dies with the word echad in his mouth and, and or the Maccabees as we'll get to shortly, don't worry, there's gonna be some Torah here, right? Um, but heroism can also be in everyone's ability to commit themselves to the good, the essential good, which underlies everything in creation. Because I'll give you a hint, you still have to watch the first episode, but I'll give you a hint. God looks at everything and sees that it's good. It's the human task to engage the goodness which is potential in everything, as an act of faith that we have a capacity to actualize the goodness within even the most difficult and even evil situations. And that's the heroic stance, the greater snow. Not everyone has a chance to save their people and to bring that level of potential good into the world. But everybody has a chance in every moment, really, to ask a simple question. What's the good in this moment? And what's the work I can do to be most serenefish, to go beyond and grow beyond my limited self in order to make that good real in the world. So you can tell me later whether you think it's a reasonable definition, but for now, to the main, what do they call it, main event, to the main event. All right, so the, the title of the class um, is Maccabean Heroism, the Power or Gura of Moral Clarity. And I was moved to pick this topic because I have a sense that we're in great danger as a people right now. And I'm not talking about Hamas. I'm not even talking about Iran. I'm talking about the threat of demoralization. Now, demoralization is funny, and you know, people don't like to talk about demoralization in war because morale, right? They say there are two definitions of victory in war. More territory than you started with, and a high morale. But it's often missed that morale and moral are, of course, not just linguistically related, but they're intrinsically related. When you are demoralized, means you've lost the moral clarity which is necessary for forging ahead in a difficult situation. I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room felt some form of moral clarity the morning after Simchat Torah or the evening or whenever you found out what had happened outside of the Gaza Strip. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I see people nodding their heads. Whatever your moral clarity was, there was a sense of clarity, and I don't mean that the world was instantly divided into black and white and everything was then obvious to you. I mean, it was driven, it, it was a clarity that allowed you to act. I don't know if you guys have seen the numbers, but they say that more than 50% of the populace in, of Israel has done official volunteerism since the outbreak of war. That's official. And as you know, Karen, as my wife pointed out to me, that if you include in that, like all the people, you know, helping their neighbors and making challah and taking care of the soldiers, kids, etc., it's probably closer to 90 that is a symptom of moral clarity. Because moral clarity demands action. And of course, the story of Hanukkah is, is, is action. So the danger of demoralization is an inability to hold a clarity of line which guides your action. And in a world in which there is evil, a lack of action is failure. There is no neutral. I know it's a cliche, it's true nonetheless. There is no neutral in this war. You are either a combatant or a casualty. The question is, what's the war? Because my argument is, it's a war for moral clarity. And once you have that clarity, the question of action flows from it. It depends on who you are in the story. If you're a frontline combat soldier, fine. If you're a politician, probably more complicated. If you're a parent, a friend, 
somebody working behind the counter in a coffee shop who is engaging they don't know who, right? If you have moral clarity, it can guide your action at every step, but moral clarity requires drawing a line and holding it, which, of course, in the tradition of the Kabbalah, drawing of a line, the mystic tradition, is about gvura. And that's really the word I want to define and then understand it in context of Hanukkah. So before I do, <clears throat> I want to point out that moral clarity has two sides. Because you know who else has moral clarity in this conflict? Hamas has absolute moral clarity. I promise you. And it allowed them to take actions which for many people are unfathomable. But you can't kid yourself. When I say that heroism is Mesirat Nefesh Lema'an Tov, it's a going beyond, a growing beyond for the essential goodness of creation. That is an assertion which is based in a tradition which we have received from our people, who they received from their parents, and they received from their parents, which came to us from Sinai. I'm not asking you to check a box on that. I'm just telling you that if you cannot trace the roots of your tov, then you will always face the problem of what really makes it different than evil. Because evil is also a sign of moral clarity. There have been a lot of people raising their hands. I don't know if you guys waste your time on platforms like Twitter and uh, other places. There's been a lot of people raising their hands on the side of evil. With real clarity. I see some nods. People have seen it. So we're going to have to come back to that question of why is it that darkness swells in the world at the same time as light? Right? Which is an upsetting, disturbing notion but one which cannot be avoided. And let's not forget, of course, that Hanukkah is part of a human experience that we reach for light when it's darkest. Every tradition of the Northern Hemisphere has some way in which it notes the human need to cleave to light in darkness. Because Shraga B'Tihara Mai Mahani, right? A torch in the noonday does nothing for anybody. But you light a match in total darkness, and the world is on fire. So, Hanukkah, right? There, there is a, a, a line which we're all familiar with that touches that evil part, which is interesting. It's like, the, the, I don't know if we're all familiar with that, I assume, but it's in the liturgy, right? The traditional, you know, prayers, which is, we're giburim chalashim, rabim ma'atim. And you hand over giburim, the mighty, into the hands of the weak, Right? And, the, and the many into the hands of the few, which tells us right away that even though I want to argue that the Maccabees were indeed the Giburim, that there's two sides to Gvura. And that's really how we're going to have to introduce our notion. So if we're going to search for the meaning of the word first, and then I'll just let you know, I'm going to give a, uh, an argument what the meaning of the word is. I want to look at in a briefly through a story which is told in the first book of Maccabees and one which is told in the second book of Maccabees. Then I'll bring it back to our modern day moral clarity and God willing, you know, in about... 40 minutes or so, we should be done. If you start to hurt, you can get up and leave. This isn't high school. Um, so, so Gura, if we're going to define a word, one of the ways in which you do it is what's called the home base principle. Right? You look where it appears first in the Torah. And if it's not you know, necessarily a comprehensive definition, it's, it's definitive in many ways. And the first appearance of Gura actually comes in Breshit in Genesis chapter 6, line 4. It says, right? the, the fallen ones or the wondrous ones 
were upon the land in those days. I say it in this voice deliberately. And even afterwards, when the children of God or the mighty noble ones came upon the, the, the daughters of men, and they, they had children with them, they are the mighty ones of old, the people of noteworthy name. This is the legendary voice of the Torah. Once upon a time, there were legends. I'm not going to go into it now, but it's an important question for me. And it will come through in many places in the Heroism Project. Is that you have to have a mythic mindset to understand what heroism really is. That's its own mysterious message. To go beyond and grow beyond either literalist, historicity, pedantic factuality in your relationship to Torah, or beyond the sense of this is nothing but myths. There's a mythic voice in which the Torah speaks, and it evokes within us a sense of an existence which is too large for human experience to contain. Truths of divine intent and human experience, which are too big for individual lives, and you heard it here. The Giburim, Anshe Hashem, once upon a time. There were great ones upon the Who are these great ones? Well, if you look in the text, the first answer we get is from the Ramban, Nachmanis, who says what seems to be a simple thing. He says, and, and after the flood, which is when everything kind of changes, they, people then would look back, they'd see the mighty people of their day, they'd remember these old ones, and they'd say, Nah, nah, nah. Once upon a time, literally, that's, there were really, really, once there were really great people. I mean, this is a sense that humanity has that there was an original glorious might, a divine might, even. If you notice, it was the B'nai, Elo, B'no, you know, B'nai Elohim. In the B'no, it was a divine might which humanity showed its face and that it's been lost. But you know what? That might be good news. Because as much as a Gibul is often portrayed as a hero, and it's the first word that we translate as hero, although one of the beauties of the Jewish heroism project is there is no single Hebrew word for hero. And we'll shoot you Hornet into, into Gibul, or anybody play uh, Settlers of Catan? We like to talk about that game in Israel. Right? If you play that game in Hebrew, you guys know what the knight is called? He's an Abir. And Abir is another great name. It's a, it's a shame of Shem, by the way. When Abir Yaakov. That's one of the names of God. It's, again, all that stuff is out there. It's just a teaser for content to come. But for now, a Gibul is a very specific type of hero. First of all, it's the legendary. Bigger than life. Second of all, who's the first Gibul? Identified by name, Nimrod. Nimrod. It says in the four chapters later, you get a Sufkaniyah later, you can give it to somebody else, you don't need it. Kush Nimrod, and Nimrod was born to Kush. He was the one who began to be a Gibul. But of course, it's a useless. This is the, the downside of the, of the home base usage, is that I don't know anything about him now. Just that he was a Gibul, but I don't know what that means. So of course, the commentaries fill in um, Ibn Ezra says, the simple sense, he showed the might, and in, in, in as I pointed out to you, is the ability to assert your will and draw lines in the world of humanity over animals. Who's in charge here? It's the might of mastery over. And without delving too deeply into how I can prove that, if people are familiar with the 
midrashic, rabbinic perspective on, on Nimrod. Good person or bad person? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Nimrod in the rabbinic mind? Thumbs down. He rebelled. That's how Rashi explains this. But he began to rebel against God. Now, it's interesting that actually before Nimrod is called a Gibor, but after we get this idea that there are legendary Giburim, the word appears as a backbeat to a very specific story, and that's the flood. If you're familiar with the text of the flood, in the first few lines, the Giburuamayim, the Yabumaod, the water was overwhelming and it was they really swelled and then it keeps going there's a third usage here I just missed it with my oh the the water if you've ever been swept by a river rolled by a wave swept by an avalanche which raise your hands right um, then you know what the of nature is when, when nature in its might takes you, you see that you are just a chip on the face of the water. You can kick and scream all you want, but you are nothing in the face of that power. That is Gvura. Right? And, and what's interesting is that, is from a character standpoint, there are only two quote-unquote characters called Giburim in the entire Torah. Later, it becomes somewhat common when, when, when with Kibush Haaretz, with the conquest of the land, for reasons that I think they're quite apparent that we'll talk about a little bit more in a second. But two, one I just gave you was Nimrod. Any guesses who the second one is? No, in the Torah, five books of Moses. It was the scare quotes that should have given it away. God. And Moshe calls God Hagibu. That's it. Nimrod and God. And now you understand why the sages immediately attack Nimrod. Because one of the characteristics of mastery as power over is that one master doesn't abide another. And this is one of the problems that we will see with Bura in general. Right? The, the experience of mastery is a dangerous experience. Right? And that's why in the Torah, only two, Nimrod and God. So like I said, it, it becomes a bit more um, general in Kivusha Aretz. Um, and one of the things that I would like to do at least a little bit of in order to understand it before, again, before we get specifically to the Hanukkah story, is just talk about the tension between what we might use in verb forms, l'hagbir or l'hitkabel. L'hagbir, like ma'arechat uh, hagbara, uh, is like, a, what do you call that? It's a speaker system. There's a word for that. Amplifier, that's what it was. Thank you. Well done. Um, the, uh, it amplifies, which is going to be an important question. Because remember what I told you, that moral clarity? People find the ability to do things which they wouldn't have thought they had done. And, and you, maybe, you, maybe you've done it, right? Someone says to you, wow, like, how, how did you do that? You know, you worked this hard, or you stayed up that late, or you went, and you, when, well, oftentimes, what's the answer? It, it just had to be done. Sometimes things have to be done. That's a symptom of moral clarity. Remember, moral clarity doesn't have to be some grandiose sense of good and evil and the clash of civilizations, etc. It can be an inner sense of like what needs to be done. And suddenly you find, within certain limits, although the heroic capacity of the human being is astounding, but suddenly you find that you, if it needs to be done, you can get it done. And you worry about what that means later. Right? And so there's that power of 
lehakbir, to amplify. But then lehitkaber, as a reflexive, is to overcome. And these two play a very important role, right? If I was going to say, where's the lahagbir element in the Tanakh? Well, one, one, you know, in the Tanakh, after the five books of Moses and this sort of difficulty between Nimrod or God and the warning which comes elsewhere, right? The archetypical warning of the Torah, which is, right, the, one might even say the, the ultimate sin of the Torah in a certain sense is kochi yadi asali It was my power and, and the strength of my hand, which did all this great works. Because that's the problem of Gura. If you're the master, then God can't be. What God wants is a sense of partnership, which maybe we'll come to at the end. So that's the, the, the lure. But later on in the Tanakh, when conquest of the land becomes a practical issue, as it is today, right? the need to just get that power moving is quite extreme. And who are the, the Giburim of Tanakh? Giburim David. Right, David, you see a list right, in, in uh, the second book of Shmuel, where Eilish Shmot Giburim Ashele David. There's a list of the mighty ones of David. And I'm not going to drag you through the list, but it's actually, if you want to look it up in, in the 23rd chapter of the second book of Shmuel, it's quite interesting the details you get. Um, but for the sake of time and focus, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But, but, but what you see is there are people who are able to do things, the stories of them sneaking into Beit Lechem and drawing water from the well of Beit Lechem because David had this you know, dream that he would have it, or sneaking into the camp of Shaul and stealing his spear, or all the great adventures. Right? Heroes go on adventures because they have gura, which means what they're able to reach inside of themselves and amplify certain capacities. He was larger than life. Right? That's a misirid nefesh. Not as a self-sacrifice, but as a tapping into a deeper part of self and giving an expression beyond your limited conception. You guys know the story about the four-minute mile? Right? If you don't, it's very simple. That There was a point in which scientists proved that a human being, because of their lung capacity, because of the, the uh, muscle structure, etc., could never break a four-minute mile. Impossible. And for many years it was so. As soon as one person broke the four-minute mile, I want to ask you, I bet there might be somebody in this room right now who once ran a four-minute mile. I don't know. It's a real accomplishment, don't get me wrong. But it's far from impossible. Why? Because when that line of the possible moved, people were able to amplify their capacity. That's what happens. Mesirut Nefesh, you go beyond, you grow beyond your limited conception of self. Now, I'm arguing for the sake of good, not just you know, for running faster, although in certain contexts that's quite good. You know, don't get me wrong. But you see, there's a power of Hagbarah, which is bound up with this heroic stance. So that's the Giburim of David. The, what about Lehit Gaber? Well, I'm betting that most people are fami- familiar with the famous, or let's say classic, um, statement of Benzoma in, in uh, Sages, in, the, in Pirkei Avot, in the, this, you know, the Ethics of Our Fathers. Ezehu Gibul. Right? It's perfect when the Sages loft you up one. Like, who is a Gibor? Mike, if you wanted to find this thing, who is the Gibul? Hakovesh Yitzro. Right? Someone who conquers their own inclinations. This is fascinating. First of all, from a, from a historical, actual standpoint, the sages wrote this when we were no longer completely sovereign, depending on when you think these state statements were actually made, where sovereignty was on its way out. Meaning, the gibul, the gvura, sorry, of David and his men waving their spears over 300 dead was historically and nationally speaking on its way out, if not already gone. 
And so the sages, you could say, were offering a different model of the same capacity. It's no longer the ability just to assert will outside of yourself. The real power is to assert will within. Now, I can make an argument that that's not just, oh, we're in exile, we don't have an army anymore. Because anybody who has ever actually asserted themselves physically, to climb a mountain, run a marathon, raise children, <laughs> um, knows that in order to assert yourself, to amplify your abilities, there's a you have to overcome other things, like that desire to just chuck it and say this isn't worth it get demoralized, lose the line that was guiding your action in the first place, right? Why am I doing this? Anybody who finds themselves in a long struggle and cannot relatively quickly answer the question, why am I doing this, is in grave danger. Remember the danger I mentioned? That is the danger we face as a people. Why are we doing this? The whole world is telling us that we are the problem. You guys know that to be a Jew is actually to be at war? You could argue, in fact, the definition of a Jew is we are the longest war in existence. Because our existence has always provoked opposition, often armed, generally antagonistic, which means to be a Jew is not to be at war, is a war. And if you can't answer the question of why be a Jew, well, a lot of people give up. Or a lot of people get knocked out. I don't mean give up, it's not what I mean. You lose, you get demoralized, doesn't mean the other guy doesn't still want to fight. Let's remember that one. You're just a lot less of a gura, powerful position to resist. So the hit kaber doesn't just mean this sort of, um, oh, we're in exile and we can't, we can't you know, use the tools of the spear and the sword anymore, so we're just going to become masters of our own internal dynamic, which is important. I don't mean to say that you know, derisively, but the, the two are, are connected. The commitment that it takes to be a Jew is an incredible hit kabrut, an overcoming of temptation to give it up, to assimilate, to just simply lose energy to to express one's Judaism in constructive and creative and life-giving fashions, whatever they may be. Right? Because if you believe something and you don't have outlets, then you don't have moral clarity. Remember, moral clarity, the symptom is action. So, so these are two sides of Gura. The Hakabir, this amplification that people experience when they face a real task. And notice that task generally involves overcoming something outside of yourself. Right? And, and then there is the hit gabrut, the overcoming within, which itself offers an amplification. If I can master myself, then all of my powers are at my disposal to do the things I really want to do in life. Right? So with this in mind, let's come to Hanukkah. The definition pieces are out there, people are with me? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Hanukkah. Did you get a question? Clarity. Clarity. The definition of the second one is just amplification. It's overcoming. The question is that what's the difference between amplification, the, the hakabir, and the hitkaber? The hakabir is the amplification, the hitkaber is overcoming. And so it, it's a, it, that focus within is an asserting a within, will within, but what you're sensing is there are two sides of the same coin. Because if I can assert my will within, that itself gives me, amplifies my ability 
to express my will outwards. And it's very rare that someone can really express their will outward in a long and difficult way if they haven't overcome all the good reasons we all want to stop fighting within. That help? Okay. So, Hanukkah. By the way, if people haven't read the, two, the two, first two books of, of, of Maccabees, it is the season, as they say. Um, it, it's really worth it. Uh, they, you know, they have a slightly off-color feel for the Orthodox out there, but, but trust me when I tell you, they're quite inspirational and they can teach you quite a bit about the, about the, the time. Um, that's a, as a plug for the authors of the books of Maccabees. Anyway, so, so it's a story of rebellion. Which, again, is a stance of moral clarity. Something is wrong in this picture, say the Maccabees, and we're not going to take it anymore. Then the question becomes, well, what are you going to do about it? Because you're facing the Rabim. You're facing the Giburim. The power of the world is against you. Sound familiar? So what are you going to do about it? Well, in the first book of Maccabees, we all know the story there. Right? story goes like this. Religious persecution, right? Antiochus says, where the Jews have to be like everybody else, right? Then they try to force, if you're not familiar with the details, Matityahu is a, uh, the head of a priestly family. He lives in Modi'in, and, and, the, and the Greeks are going around and trying to get the priests to sacrifice to the, to the idols to show everyone that we can all just be one happy Greek family. Matityahu refuses to sacrifice, Right? Another Jew, apostate, stands up and says, well, hey, I'll do it. You made him some good promises there. I'd like to cash in on that. And Matityahu grabs the sword, kills the Jew. Don't forget that the first casualty of the Maccabean revolt is an apostate Jew. Um, kills the Jew, and then sparks this rebellion where he declares, right, who is the man who trembles for the Torah of his Lord, and cleaves to his covenant, come after me. Or some people attribute to him the same phrase which we see actually in the mouth of Moshe, which is, all those who are for God, come to me. Right? This is, and it's Gvura from there on out, by the way, in classic sense of David and his, and his warriors swinging their spears over 300 dead. It's a straight line from that moment to the conquest of the temple and its rededication um, and it's quite brutal, by the way. If you, if you read the description, right? I'm not going to necessarily do that right now because I want to stay focused. But it, it's worth it to look at the details of how they specifically poured out their wrath and gvura on the apostates who had lost moral clarity. And the people were saying, we can just be Hebrew-speaking Greeks. Why are you guys so hung up on who you sacrifice to and how you sacrifice and, and, and this whole self-mutilation thing that you call a covenant is just like passe and, and you should let kids grow up and make a decision on their own and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Come on, why are you being so stubborn, Jew? And something in the Maccabees say, well, I'm not being stubborn, I'm being a Jew. And I think actually that means being stubborn. It means swimming upstream. To be a Jew is to swim upstream. And so the Maccabees said, we, we're Jews, so I'm going that way. And history was against them, and they asserted themselves. And you know how the story goes. We beat our enemies, let's eat. Right? Classic gluah, and, and there's an amplification of their power. Right? The, the few beat the many. We all know the stories. That's one face. 
many people are less familiar with the story of the second Maccabees, um, which, just as an aside, is a product of a very different culture. There's some scholarly debate around these things, but the general consensus is that the first Maccabees is a story of power and national strength, written for a Hebrew-speaking Eretz Israel, land of Israel, probably within 10 years after the Maccabean Revolt, to help establish the rectitude of the kingdom that the Hasmoneans were fighting, because the Hanukkah battle where they rededicated the temple is really the beginning of the war, not the end. Good 20-plus years after the revolt where they finally established their independence, or what becomes known as the Hasmonean kingdom. So that's like the Israeli version, if we want to just be blunt about it. National might. The second book of Maccabees was written originally in Greek for Hellenistic Jews living in Egypt in general, Alexandria in particular. And it was an attempt to convince them that this was a day of significance. And there you see a very different story. Right? Again, religious persecution this time, it's Ptolemy, whatever, you can get into who was, right? He, but when's the crisis moment when the oppression comes to the point where we say, we're not going to take it anymore, to be a Jew is to swim upstream, you can't make me? It's very different. It's all about martyrdom. And so there's a, a whole theme of martyrdom, in fact, in the second book of Maccabees, but the first martyr is all the one we need to think about, right? He's a, a man of, of perfect character, scribe, wise in the ways of the Lord, presumably a priest, because if you don't know, the whole Hellenistic, anti-Hellenistic struggle had its core in the priesthood. That's why the Maccabees were a priestly family that left Jerusalem and stayed away from the corruption of the Hellenized priesthood, right? And they want to force Eleazar to eat unclean meat, which is instead of the sacrifice of Matityahu, it's a parallel story. And he says to them, no, as, as the author says, his gvura comes, ki nafsho right? He chose with his nefesh, with his life, to give his back to those who would strike him, to die in the rectitude of his heart. Meaning what? He would rather die than bend. It was not an issue of expressing his power outward. That's not what this story is about. He's not grabbing a sword and saying, me, Lashem, alive, but, but, but people are watching. Because the story goes on that some of his friends came to him and said, listen, you don't actually have to eat the trafe of meat. Bring your own meat. And we'll have a little tekes, we'll have a ceremony. Everybody, Eliezer is going to eat the bad meat, and you'll just eat your own meat. It's fine. It's kosher. You see how insidious the war was? This is, by the way, narrative war in its essence. Because the action he was doing on its own right, was completely permitted. He wasn't doing anything wrong in his action. But he understands, that if you look it up there, it's, um, you know, he says, he refuses, by the way. I should just, I'm sorry, do it, spoiler. He says, absolutely not, right? He says, I'm going to die with a, with a clean, happy heart even. Like it's appropriate for an elder like me. I'm going to be a sign and an example for all of my people in order that they should be willing to sacrifice their own lives. Happy and with goodness of heart. 
for the sake of the Torah and its laws. Meaning he understands exactly what's being asked of him. And he chooses, he overcomes, remember he overcomes his most basic yetzer. There is no more basic yetzer than the desire to live. He overcomes the desire to live, the enemy within, so to speak. By the way, also combined with the fact that he's going to become Mr. Popular as soon as he does it. Let's not forget that. This is a public show. He'll be lauded. Everybody will love him. The powers that be will say, you've made the right choice, Jew. But he's not willing to do it. Right? He knows that nothing could be more demoralizing. Demoralizing. Nothing could de more deeply undermine the whole moral principle on which he and his people had built their lives than a willingness to desecrate his belief simply to save his life. Simply. And so, with some dramatic speeches which are worth reading, right? he dies. And the author, which is the nature of the second book of Maccabees, doesn't beat around the bush. He tells us exactly what he wants us to know. Right? He says, he says his last words is that Tayyodei, speaking to God, Right? You know, God, that I could have saved myself from these torturers. But with a, with a, a heart or a soul filled with desire, I've, I've taken it. For the sake of your great name, and his soul went out and he died. In his death, he was an example and a teaching to the old and the young to love Hashem and to fear it. This is, if you know the story, followed immediately by the story of the woman and her seven sons, who all refuse and then suffer martyrdom in one day. And then the Maccabees appear, but with no drama. It's like the Maccabees got there and everybody was sick of it and they managed to rally them. And, but you understand it's a fundamentally different perspective on the same story. But in the end of the day, they're both about the same thing. And this is where I want to bring it together. They're about Gvura. In the first story, Oz Ugvualumit, right? A power and might, external might, of conquest, which was very important because, like I said, there's two definitions to victory in war. Holding territory and high morale. Especially when you're fighting a hundred-year war, as our present national iteration has been. Territory I don't really need to speak about right now because we're duking it out in the field. But without morale, with a demoralization, if you cannot answer the question, which is one of the problems we face. Remember, I started by saying we're in real danger. If you cannot answer the question, why are we doing this? Then at a certain point internally, it will be, I don't want to anymore. Or, I have to, because circumstances will force me. But then you'll lose that power of Haggabarah. It won't amplify your capacities anymore. But in order to answer that question, there's a hikabrut. There's an internal overcoming. Of what? Well, I want to end with this piece. Now, Chazal, the sages say in Shabbat, in the Gemara and Shabbat, Ein shura el al Right? The presence of God only comes to rest on one who is wise mighty, gibble, and wealthy. Now, 
There are many ways to understand this. It's interesting, by the way, if you look, Ezehu Chacham, Ezehu Gibul, Ezehu Ashir. The Mishnah in Pirkei Alba actually asks the question, what are each of those qualities, even though it doesn't explicitly link back here, I, in my humble opinion, that is a, a, a direct line. So each of them gets its own answer. But, but it's interesting that, um, that the Rambam has a commentary specifically on this teaching in Hilchot uh, Yisoria Torah, because he says this is about Nevoah. When he says that the Shechina Shua, when the presence of God comes to rest, literally, now remember, of course, that the Maccabees are at that end of that prophetic period. Right? There are no revealed miracles, but we get this whole candle thing, which, you know, is an amazing story in a powerful light. But never forget, the biggest miracle of the candles is in their Gvura. You know what the biggest miracles, the, the real Gvura of the candle is? Right? How many of you guys lit Hanukkah candles last year? Raise your hands. You can't see each other. Out there in Radio Land. How many of you guys, right? Right? I want you to know that the fact that Jews are still lighting those candles 2,500 years after events that we could argue from now until next Tuesday about how they happen, if they happen, when they happen, why they happen, but we're going to light that light and put a little more light in the world, that's moral clarity. We're taking an action which expresses a victory of light over darkness, of good over evil, of the persistence of what it is to be a Jew in the world, which is to swim upstream. So when the Rambam says, well, this prophetic spirit, when it comes to rest, what does it mean you have to be a Yubor? Chacham, fine, you got to be wise. Ashir, we'll leave it in its simple sense, is that those of us that work for a living know that we don't have so much time for contemplation, right? So we'll just leave that as a, a technical issue, even though I think there's more to it than that. Um, what's the Gvura? First of all, the Rambam actually says um, that it's not... Well, let's, I'll put it the other way. The Kesev Mishnah, the classic commentary on the Rambam says, Kipshuto, you got to be healthy and strong. And, that, and that, that's a, a very, a, it's very simple and very important understanding that, that, that a person who is disconnected from their body and does not push themselves to at least grow beyond and go beyond their limits. I'm not asking everybody to be a marathon runner or a weightlifter or something, but, but can push up against the limits of their physical to grow, then you, you're going to be challenged in a basic capacity to receive divine spirit, whatever you think that means. Because how do you receive if you can't grow? How do you get more than you already have if you can't make space for it to come in? And physically speaking, that's where we learn to do such things. But the Rambam actually says that this is a gibor of a midotav, right? It's a, it's a gibor in their, in their personal qualities, right? That your desire shouldn't overcome you, rather you should overcome them. So I'm going to suggest to us now this, and I'll wrap it up because there's a lot of pieces in the air, and it's getting late, and everybody needs a sufkaniyah, and we're going to make a l'chaim, and we'll all go home, right? Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up and say this. If we want to not only avoid the demoralization, the loss of the moral clarity that many, if not all of us, experienced on October 7th on Simchat Torah, then we need Gvuna. The Gvuna needs to find expression in two ways. It needs to be a moral clarity that causes us to act. Again, I don't even need to tell you what to do, because everybody has that avenue. But if you're worried about being demoralized, it also works in the opposite direction. Take action. That will help you find moral clarity. Take action which is simple to you. Take care of the people you care about. Extend yourself for those that you don't know. Create the spaces for others to act. 
And you will find in doing so that your clarity will return. Right? The other piece is lehit gaber, is that the world is making a very clear effort to tell us that we do not have a right to exist, that we in fact don't even exist, that we've always been wrong, we've always been the source of trouble, and don't think that that stuff doesn't affect you. If you think it doesn't, then we can talk about it, because, because just knowing that so many people out there hate you affects the way you think of yourself. And if you don't engage that consciously, to overcome that and say, I am somebody, then you risk demoralization, a loss of the moral clarity of the importance of the Jewish people in the world, which is, of course, what Hanukkah is also about. The insistence that even in darkness, we will shine our light, we will swim upstream, and whether called upon for the extreme of martyrdom or the extreme of war, we will be mitkaber u magbir, we will amplify and overcome all opposition, and God willing, we'll all merit together in our time to see a return of the light of our heroes in a way in which it will shine for us and for the whole world, never more to be extinguished. So thank you guys for joining me. I really appreciate your attention. I really would like everyone, please, to join me for some refreshments and uh, conversation that folks like. And Hanukkah uh, Sameh. This is it. We are live. The Jewish Heroism Project is now officially out the door. If you want to be part of it, Go to the website, jewishheroism.com. You'll see a button in the upper right-hand corner. You can click on that to give a little support. Find the pull-down menu and find the Jewish Heroism Project there. This is for a one-time U.S. donation tax-free. If you want to find another way to support the project or you want to do it in shekels, be in touch with me, robmikefoyer at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. In general, I want to know what you think. I've got a grand vision here, and it's not too late to put your two cents in. So send me a message, throw up the smoke signals, do what you need to do to let me know what you think. I'm super excited. And I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project.